0: Welcome back everyone. If you are wondering which twilight zone you ventured into, this is the product uncensored show with your host Colin Pell. Now, first off, I want to wish all our Muslim viewers and listeners who are watching or listening um who are observing the fasting month, a uh, happy Ramadan or Ramadan Mubarak. Um, so yeah, for those of you who don't know, um, you know Muslims are a majority in Southeast Asia and they're currently going through a fasting month. It's, uh, it's, it's a really tough act, I have to admit. like I don't think I could ever do it, so I'm very thankful I don't have to do it. But for those of you who are observing, more power to you. All right, so we've got a great guest on the show today, as usual, um, but of course, as usual as well, we've got to go through the four commandments of the Product Uncensored show. So the first is I write at www.productuncensored.com. Now I'll freely admit that, you know, this year I haven't given that, the, the, the medium site much love as I have last year. And I promise you that in the next month I will. Um, but yeah, I've got some, some writings there. Um, if you'd like to watch um, these sessions, uh, we're available on YouTube. And if you are going to YouTube to check it out, please do me a favor, click on the subscribe link. And also when you subscribe, don't forget to click on that bell icon uh, at the side as well so that you're always notified when we have new uh, content coming out. Um, if you prefer to only listen, um, not, not to see my ugly mug of a face, that's great as well. We're on all major podcasting platforms. You should see it coming up, I think, right here. I hope I've mastered out of getting the sites correct. Um, and finally, if you want to support this show, uh, this is all voluntary. There is a link in the description here, I think she'll be appearing now, uh, where you can, you can support the show for the price of a coffee. Okay, we're done. And now I can actually get to the real interesting stuff, which is introducing our guest for today. Now, this person, he is a giant in the product management scene. He's also a literal giant in real life. He's known all around the product community, all around the world for his work, and he probably created the most famous Venn diagram in product management history. So he is the man, the myth, the legend, Martin Erickson. Welcome to the show, Martin.
1: Thanks so much, Colin, and thank you for that intro. I think I've been so effusively introduced before.
0: Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'd like to, you know, Write a nice intro, so I thought, yeah, that that would be fun. Um, so, how how are things? How are things in the UK? By the way,
1: it's good. We're getting there. I think um, you know it's been a rough year of lockdowns and stuff like that, but things are finally opening up. We have some beautiful spring weather. Um, I've got my first shot, so it feels like there's light at the end of the tunnel, and just hope the rest of the world can follow us.
0: Yeah. Did Did you think that you know we would still be here one year after? No, the first lockdown happened definitely almost across
1: not. the world. I definitely not. I think as as the pandemic started, even before it was a pandemic, everyone was like, oh, that's, you know, it's, it's a, I think everyone thought it was going to be like SARS. Like, oh, it's going to be a thing. It's in Southeast Asia. Okay. Like, and then it started spreading all over the world. And like, okay, this is a thing. And then came to Europe and we're like, okay, we're going to lockdown, but it will be like, you know, a month. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, it'll be three months. And yeah, here we are. What, 14, 15 months later.
0: Yeah, and I know. It's, it's, a it's crazy year. It's been absolutely insane. You know, even people that I speak to personally, like no one can actually imagine. Like, I still remember telling my wife, right? You know, you we watch all these zombie movies about, you know, the apocalypse and how we're all stuck yeah. at home and it's like half dead people walking around. But essentially, this is the real zombie movie, except that there are no dead people, but there are people dying and we're all locked up at home. We don't you know. Many of us are, are still not, brave enough to to travel here and there you know flights are banned and this is the real apocalyptic zombie movie right so
1: also we can't make fun of zombie movies anymore right when we see those people like run away from the zombies like protect yourselves (laughs) like we know humanity just isn't smart enough to do that at this point so that
0: is true (laughs) that is also true that is very very true yeah so you know, when 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 I was uh, when I was uh, just thinking about you know the the introduction as well, I, I was just kind of thinking back to I think the first time that we met in person, I think was in twenty nineteen in Singapore, um, and we're meeting at uh, was it Fullerton Fullerton Hotel was it I think yeah, it was yeah
1: probably
0: yeah yeah and and I still remember I was like you, you, in the email you say you know look for look for me you know I'm not ha- I'm not easy to miss or something like that I'm like yeah you know I, I should probably recognize the face. I have to admit, I, I wasn't I wasn't prepared for like okay, all right, that that big dude over there is him. Like literally, I could not miss you. And so yeah, if, if those of you who haven't seen Martin in real life, like he looks, I mean not to say he looks bad or anything, but it's just that yeah, he's really tall in real life. So that that was a real shocker for me. <laughs> like, yeah,
1: you're know, like what six nickname... six feet
0: eleven or something? <laughs>
1: uh, six five, but that's it's tall enough um yeah. and that's why my nickname the big friendly giant kind of stuck ever since high school so uh,
0: but you, okay so bfg stands for big friendly giant you yeah. know that there's a bfg in the game called quake mm-hmm. which stands for something yes. very different
1: yeah which we probably shouldn't say on
0: you know, okay light yeah.
1: Television. but
0: yeah i mean yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> no no i'm the same after be- the bfg the bfg is a, a classic book by roldell right so okay that, that at least came out first
0: okay because because when i saw bfg was like wow you play quick <laughs> and you called yourself that, it's like Ooh. yeah but we will we will not you know for for the sake of people who are watching this with kids around yeah we will keep it you know safe <laughs> i'm i'm just kidding you can go ahead and say whatever you want this is the product <laughs> on the show i don't care so yeah um but anyway moving on i, I wanted to start by just um you know calling out a part of your life that I thought was really, really interesting. Um, because, you know, some people say like, hey, Martin, what's, what's the connection with Southeast Asia? And I always like to say that, you know, some way, somehow I'm going to tie it back to Southeast Asia. <laughs> um, and I thought it would be good for you to, to tell us a little bit about your story about where you grew up.
1: Yeah, so my dad was an electrical engineer and kind of, I guess, got bored of Sweden at an early age. Uh, and it actually worked in Peru and Liberia before I was even born. And then I was born in Sweden, like the the only two-year period, I think my parents actually lived and worked in Sweden together. And then uh, at 18 months old, we moved to Jakarta. So this is a very, very long time ago now. I was obviously a, barely a toddler, uh, but we lived in Jakarta for nearly three years and then moved to Nairobi, For another couple of years and then ended up in bangkok for nearly four years before doing some other countries but i think it's through those kind of experiences in jakarta and in bangkok i just fell in love with the region and and in other places that we've lived we've always traveled back so Part of my dad's kind of expat contract, which I'm not even sure exists anymore, uh, included kind of travel home. But we didn't really have a home to travel to in Sweden. So we would just, you know, go to Bangkok for Christmas or, you know, things like that. So spent a lot of time in the region. I just fell in love with it and was so excited to be able to come back and, and also to kind of see our, our community grow throughout the region. Right.
0: Very nice. So it, by, your, by your rough tally, right, how many countries have you lived
1: in? So I've lived in nine countries. You're going to make yeah. me do math in my head now. So yeah, <laughs> nine or 10 countries.
0: Yeah, I think that's about the number of countries I've been through all around the world. But <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it was very interesting that, that you, you actually not just, you know, you had your first three years in Indonesia and in Jakarta, but you also spent time in, in Thailand as well. Do you remember much about your, your, your growing up in Jakarta?
1: I mean, it's the classic memories as a kid, right? It's like I don't know how much of it's my memories versus you know we've been through photo albums and things like that as a family, and my parents have told you stories. I, so I remember bits and pieces. Um, I I think I remember more like the countryside, and and we you know we would go out into the into the countryside quite often. Obviously, we'd travel to places like Bali and things like that as well, and had lovely memories of those things. But I think most of my memories from jakarta are probably more you know told by my parents okay i definitely have much clearer memories from bangkok okay so i it wouldn't
0: be fair to ask you whether you prefer jakarta or bangkok
1: (laughs) probably not (laughs) also this was jakarta like 40 years ago so i'm you know it's a very very different place today
0: Okay, very nice, very nice. <laughs> okay, okay, let's 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 get into the, the the good stuff, right? So, um maybe maybe you can start by telling us, you know, how did you land your first product management gig?
1: So, I think it was basically middle 90s. I had just graduated high school, started university was not enjoying my classes very much, so you know, it was, I started uni in 95 just as the web was exploding. I'd already been building like websites and stuff just for myself or, you know, messing around with BBSs before that, all sorts of stuff. And I ended up spending more time in the computer lab kind of building websites for like the first student newspaper website, the first like university website, like all of this stuff, and then decided to drop out and, oh, you know, I'll come back later was kind of the idea. Moved to Stockholm and kind of started working for some startups as kind of a web designer web developer but kind of doing a little bit of everything as you do in startups and had titles like webmaster or website master and things like that ah yes um didn't even basically know that product was a thing until two startups later in uh the end of 99 i moved to london and joined monster the, the big job board as a product manager and i was like oh Oh, this is what I've been doing. This is like connecting the dots between, you know, design and engineering and the business and having all those conversations and trying to figure out what we need to build next, like all of that stuff. And so that's where I kind of learned the craft, I think, and very much now, you know, 21 years ago, very old school way of doing it, the wrong way of doing it. But at least that's kind of where I started that journey. Very
0: nice. So when you when you decided to to join Monster, did you apply for the job or were you like hunted for the job? And and I, yeah, what did you why did you decide to take that job? Yeah.
1: I'm pretty sure I applied for that job it's so long ago now. Um, I'm pretty sure I applied for that job. I was playing for a few things. I knew I wanted to kind of leave Stockholm because, uh, you know, my international background, I just wanted to try something different. So. London was somewhere I wanted to move to had a bunch of friends who already lived here, all that kind of stuff. So I'm pretty sure I applied for a bunch of jobs in those kind of things. And I, at this point, you're probably going to ask me, but I wouldn't even remember like how I thought product manager sounded like a good idea. But I guess the job description would have been like a bit of a wake up call of like, Oh, yeah, I can do those things. That makes sense. And, you know, just seemed like the right fit at the time. And it turned out to be true.
0: Yeah. It sounded like a good idea, which, I mean, 20 years on, it definitely was a good idea, right? So, yeah. And so then the big question that comes out of this is when did you create that Venn diagram? Was it, you know, monster? Was it after, you know, when did you create that legendary um, Venn diagram?
1: It was definitely a lot later. I think it was, I probably created it first in about 2010 or something as a you know, talking to people about what product was and the blog post that made it famous was published in 2011. So it's, it's now 10 years old. Um, but I think, it, you know, the f- first 10 years of my product career is definitely doing much more old school product, a lot of like product requirement documents, you know, spending six months writing the perfect spec and then throwing it over the wall to engineering and getting something completely different out the other end. And, <laughs> you know, all the things we know not to do today, hopefully. Uh, and I did it at Monster for six years in a couple of different roles uh, and then I moved on to the Financial Times and then it was uh, at a startup as the first kind of VP product at a startup that I really had to like step back and think about like what is this role actually and, and how does mm-hmm. it fit in with everyone else and what are the skills that we need in this team and things like that that made me start thinking about the, the Venn diagram and, and how to define it. and. And to start spreading that
0: hmm. so why why did you choose the Venn diagram? like what was the what was the inspiration? Was it because you know you were like scribbling on a tissue or a napkin or or, or yeah, was it was it like by design, by accident?
1: It was definitely by accident and never intended it to blow up, obviously. but um I'm definitely a visual thinker and visual communicator. so i I do a lot of like sketching stuff and I do a lot of like you know processing stuff on a whiteboard kind of thing with the team. so. It just came out naturally of trying to define how, how these things fit together. And, and the, I think predominantly when I'm, when I think about the Venn diagram, I actually think about the skills needed in the product team, as opposed to necessarily like the product manager sits in the center of this web and is, you know, in charge of these things, or, you know, it's, it's, it was never about like a, a supremacy thing or like product is in, in charge of these other th- disciplines or anything like that. It's very much focused on the skills needed as a whole in a product team. So. I guess it, I think it came out of kind of one of those whiteboarding sessions when we're trying to figure out how to build a team at that startup. What skills mm. do we need? Like, who else do we need? Okay, so I'm kind of definitely more in that UX bucket. So my next hire needs to be someone in the, you know, coming from the tech or the business bucket to make sure that it kind of complements my skills, things like that.
0: Okay, okay. All right, two, two, two more questions, I think, I, in my head there too, but hopefully there's only two and then we'll move on. So the first question is, how, do, like, how does it make you feel to to after all these years still be so associated with that diagram do you like do you do you even care or is like is that like you wish something else would be different or like yeah
1: i feel i mean it's pretty surreal to see it popping up all over the place and you know unassociated with me and, and people using it to you know describe product and sometimes not exactly the way i would use it to describe it but it's definitely surreal that it's kind of taken on a life of its own and you know i have massive imposter syndrome for most of everything that i've done and i think definitely for that of like oh well it's just a sketch i'd think like okay fine I, I, it resonated that's awesome and it's kind of awesome to hope that it's helped a lot of people understand what it is that we do um mm. but yeah it was never intended and i think um it's a very surreal experience sometimes when you see other people you know use it to explain the craft that i love mm. um without knowing that you know I was I was the one that created it when they're using it to explain it to me kind of thing.
0: <laughs> so so it has actually happened, like somebody tried to explain back to you using the diagram you created.
1: Or not necessarily explain it to me because always they they would they knew that I've I do the product thing, but um I've definitely had people, you know, have it index or something or like, and and as everyone knows, like this is what product looks like. And so this is what what we're thinking about. I was like, yeah, yeah, I I recognize that diagram. fine.
0: Yeah, it looks, looks familiar. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So last question on this. So you said it came out around 2011 and yeah i think yeah. that's where that that blog post came up yeah. so now it's 2021 so it's like what 10 years have passed do you think that diagram still holds true what would you change or what would you not change about it
1: i think it probably does still hold true i would um more than anything probably encouraged as everything else right is like read the manual like read the actual post because i I looked at it recently because it is almost 10 years old now and and actually i think it still holds true and it it is kind of emphasizing all those things around product not being um at the center of this in terms of you know control or management like it's it is a team sport it's about bringing together these skill sets into one team etc etc so i think the only thing i would change is the caveat of like make sure you actually read the thinking behind it as opposed to just using it blindly Um, I think the other thing I would maybe add is like, and I do this in some talks showing that, you know, there's probably five or six or more circles that you could draw in there as well, like all overlapping, but it starts becoming a bit ridiculous, right? But there's, you know, data science, there's product marketing, there's, there's so many other skill sets that we do need to bring to bear today in a team. Um, but I say, I still think those three are, are the core
0: yeah i mean that's the beauty i think of the diagram it's it's in the simplicity like i saw one one i can't remember when i saw it i think it was a few weeks back just like he there was like he drew like you know i don't know like what looked like 10 circles and i was like this is the real deal it's like yeah i think we know that but it's just that you know it's easier to explain it to someone who doesn't understand by using three yeah. versus you know yeah. 10 or 20 circles so yeah so i mean thank you thank you so much for that because that's actually one of the first few diagrams that i actually um, found when, when when I first started uh, quite a while back as well. Um, so yeah, thank thank you so much for that. So now moving on, I wanted to ask you, so in your product career, right, when you moved from a, uh, I think you moved from Monster to then the Financial Times, yeah. then you moved to Huddle, right? So yeah. was Huddle your first like leadership role? Um, yeah.
1: I think it was like my first, um... I guess, senior leadership role, right. As a VP product Mm -hmm. and creating a, a, the function from scratch. But I definitely had, you know, fairly senior positions at the Financial Times, but not, you know, I wasn't the VP or the CPO, but I was was kind of in charge of the whole classifieds business at the Financial Times. Mm -hmm. And then at monster before that. So originally I was just a, just, you know, one of many product managers in the European team, uh, going from like four countries to 18 countries and, and kind of growing that business. And then the last three years I spent at Monster, I was actually in charge of the, what we call the solutions business, which is kind of a very early software as a service kind of applicant tracking system, mm-hmm. white label job board, like okay. selling into big enterprise mm-hmm. customers, that kind of thing. And so in that, I, you know, I was in charge of that, but of course that was a tiny part of the overall Monster machine. So it wasn't like I was the ultimate product leader or anything like that.
0: Yeah, but I mean, like Monster back back in those days, they were huge, weren't they? They were like yeah. like number one in the world, and and all that. Yeah, I think
1: on, we yeah. grew to about a, a billion dollars in revenue by the time I left, sort of thing. And again, not taking credit for any of that it was a, you know several mm. thousand people in the company at that point as well, and, and a global presence. But yeah, it was an exciting journey to be part of yeah. at the time.
0: Yeah, the the question I was actually wanting to ask you was, you know, what was you know what what would be the main difference or differences f- moving from that. You know perfecting your single contributor craft into this role where you're you're a leader you're also people manager yeah what would what was the hardest part
1: yeah i think it's the i think for any product person making that leap it's really rethinking what your job is right because you're suddenly not responsible for the product anymore you're responsible for the team and the people that create the product right and I think a lot of our thinking and experience and knowledge can come in, you know, super useful in terms of thinking about how to iterate on that and how do we improve the process and how do we involve the team in that conversation and how do we manage our team as a product kind of thing. But it is a very big shift and it's, especially for me as I still, you know, love getting hands on and building stuff, right? I love designing stuff and I'm still every once in a while jumping into code and things like that. But you really have to leave that behind when you, when you go from an, even as an IC product manager, you shouldn't be doing that. But definitely as a product leader, like you are not responsible for the day to of, day of what your team is building. You're responsible for setting them up for success and giving them what they need in order to go build the best product. So it's a big mind shift, I think. And it's not something everyone uh, is good at. And that's probably a good thing. That's That's fine. I think that's why we are seeing more and more, you know senior ICs or distinguished product managers or, or whatever the title is that lets you be a fantastic product manager, but just be responsible for a very important part of the product or to also be a coach on the product's craft and things like that, but still be hands-on and be recognized that that can be a, a senior career path as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think that two two episodes ago, I got Sharif on the show, like he's mm, uh, yeah. he used to be an IC um, yep. at an Alassian at for, for a long time. Actually, by the time I interviewed him, he'd, he'd already had some people management duties, but he he was an IC for, for a long time. And I think that's a very interesting, I won't even say interesting, I think it's a positive development in the product management world Definitely. because um, for a long time, and, and, and in actual fact, I think in Southeast Asia, it still has a lot of that connotation that if you want to go up the ladder, you're going to have to be like a people manager and there's a lot of i won't say it's very explicit but if you were to say i'm a product leader with a team of x as opposed to i'm a single individual contributor product leader there's a very big difference in the way people would respond to you so i think you know as as hopefully you know as we catch up to 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 more mature product countries I think it'd be really great to see more individual contributors who are really, you know, just honed in on their craft and just being good at what they do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we can take a lot of lessons from our friends in design and engineering on that front, right? Engineering has that kind of architect track for the individual contributor, you know, technical excellence, all focused on the craft versus the CTO track, which is much more about the people management. Mm. Uh, Design has similar things and... It's still going to be, you know, there's obviously room for less people at that level, but I think it is fantastic to have, you know, and Sharif's a fantastic example of this, uh, a really excellent IC who doesn't want to stop being, you know, hands-on as part of a product team Mm. and that they can grow in their career and they can be compensated accordingly as well um, and kind of lead the organization, but from a craft perspective as opposed to a people perspective, I think it's, it's a really good progression. Yeah, actually I think you touched on a really good point, right? Part
0: of the part of the difficulty of trying to create this indi- individual contributor track is whether or not the the people who hold the purse strings actually value the the contribution as much as a people manager would and yeah. yeah, I think that's 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 a big challenge that we need to overcome to sort of, you know, tell the story of the value that this person brings and just because he or she is not handling a team it doesn't mean that they're any less valuable. Uh, in that yeah. sense, so yeah, it's
1: definitely, and especially you know, I think Sharif um, has done a couple of talks on it, and and he's shown like how Atlassian thinks about it, and they have the the kind of ladder concept that you know you, you you're on the same rung as um, you know a VP, and you're paid accordingly and everything else, but you're still a you know you're a distinguished product manager or, or whatever the title is um and then therefore responsible for you know probably one of the most important products or problem areas in the product and obviously that has a huge impact on the business outcome as well so that should be compensated accordingly
0: agreed 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 yeah I, i was just telling Sharif when he came on the on the show like if you were to like type um what is product management his video actually turns up at number one and every time i go to youtube every now and then that same video keeps popping up. It just popped up again last week, so it is sure proof that what he's done is has really had a great impact. Um, I would say probably that's the second most recognizable thing next to the Venn diagram that you created. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, speaking of uh, Venn diagrams and, and product management, right? So, um, as everyone should know, and if you don't know that Martin started Mind the Product, please go check it out. Um, how how did that come about? You know, what what made you decide to, you know, I, I don't know, I'm I'm assuming here of, you know, you suddenly deciding one day that, hey, I want to do this. Yeah, what how did it come about? Uh
1: it I mean it <clears throat> again, never intended to be that big. Uh it started as product tank, the the meetup. And it started in 2010. So when I was at that startup uh Huddle here in London. And it... As most people who have been in a startup know, when you're a product person, you're probably pretty lonely, right? Um, My joke is always that, like, the engineers were ganging up on me and the designers just made fun of me. And I had no one to talk to about, like, product stuff, right? Because I hadn't built the team yet. And so it started from that point of, you know, I'm trying some new things. We're experimenting with autonomous teams. Like, we're doing all this stuff. But I have nobody else to talk to who has that product perspective. So... Just wanted to meet other product people. And you know, we started with 25 people in the back room of a pub here in London. Um, my boss gave me like a couple hundred pounds to like buy some beers and managed to get a room behind that pub. And yeah, that's that's all I ever wanted it to be, to be honest. I mean, a lot like the meetup that you have in KL, right? Of like just want to be able to meet other people, share some lessons learned, get to, you know, ask some questions, figure out how to do this craft of ours, right? Mm. And again, I I thought. That's probably where it would have stayed, except other people obviously felt this need as well. And so it very quickly grew within a year to about 100 people coming to this meetup every month.
0: And this was still in and London, that,
1: yeah? This is still in London. Okay. Um, and then in uh, 2011, we started wanted to start a blog to kind of start connecting the dots between the meetups. And for some reason, we decided we should give it a different name so it became mind the product and again it's showing our london roots so the joke was like mind the gap is obviously one of the famous symbols for london so mind the product yeah that'll be great um little again thinking that it would ever go international and somewhere around there you know i think again because london's such an international city that people were coming to the product tank and then moving home so i think the first two outside of London were Amsterdam and Manchester. And that was because people had been coming to the London meetup and were like, oh, well, I'm moving back here. There's nothing like that here. Can we start something like this? And we're like, yeah, OK, cool. Like, here's here's how to think about it. We know you. We trust you that, you know, you have the right or the same way to think about a product that we do. Here's some tools to get up and running and, and go with it. And so that's that's just how it kind of grew up.
0: Mm. So how did you or when did you decide that, you know, hey, we should, you know, sort of branch out. Like, what, Yeah, how did you know there was time to multiply?
1: I think, it, I mean, it, so the product tank multiplication has always been incredibly organic, right? We've never done, you know, we never go out to find anyone. We never, you know, we've never been marketing it or anything like that. It's always been people coming to us and saying, I want to start this in my city because I need the help or I want to meet other product people. And so I think it was, yeah, it was probably 2011, 2012 that we kind of formalized because we were starting to get more requests of like, how do we do this? Do we like, how do we want to set this up? And the only bit that we've actually formalized is that we want to make sure that anyone who starts a product tank has the same thinking about it, that they are practitioners that want to meet other practitioners. So, you know, we've, we've said no to agencies and we've said no to vendors and things like that, because we don't Mm. want them to kind of own the meetup in their, in their city. And so we just have some like light rules like that around um what kind of a meetup and what kind of a community it should be um but other than that I and mean, we try to support our our meetups all over the world so we pay for their meetup fees we you know help them out by introducing me to each other and helping uh find speakers and all that kind of stuff but the growth was really just purely organic and still is to mm. this day like i think there was definitely an inflection point somewhere in 2014 2015 where we kind of went from 2030 to you know over 100 and now we're at 216 cities around the world which is insane yeah. um, but it's all been driven by organic growth basically nice nice okay and then my the product really grew as a as a side thing again of just okay 2012 we're like how do we get these you know the big famous speakers over in the us how do we get them to come to our meetups like okay well we probably have to pay them for their travel at least and and ideally we'd like to pay them you know a speaker fee or something hmm. And we're like, okay, well, then we have to sell tickets. Like, you know, I guess we're doing a conference, right? And that's, that's literally the thought process that went into our first conference in London, uh, where we had about 450 people. And again, just kind of grew from there. And it wasn't until 2015 that it stopped being a hobby, even, I think, for those first five years and mm-hmm. until our first SF conference, it was still a hobby. We were just doing it as, as a side business, right? Like my co-founders, Jan and Simon, were running their own startup. Um, I was, you know, VP product at various startups and we were just doing this on the side. So it wasn't until 2015 that we kind of realized that, oh shit, this is actually a thing now, and, and maybe like <laughs> we need to treat this a little more seriously and you know, set up a company, and, and you know, uh, a few of us went full-time to actually try to scale it up and, and stabilize it, I think, as much as anything, right? So mm. we're still a small team, but it's more about kind of building a, a stable core to be able to support that community, really.
0: Yeah, yeah. Actually, the the what you've mentioned is very very nice because it, it kind of dovetails into what I wanted to ask. Right? How how did you manage to handle, or rather, I, I think it's you and your the the team that 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 were running it to do it as a part time job? Because it, it this wasn't just running a meetup, right? This was literally having conferences churning out content for my product website and also at the same time trying to support the various product tanks that were growing all all around in cities all around the world right how how did you manage that
1: i mean the the those first five years were definitely you know it was a passion project i mean to a large degree it still is because it doesn't pay what i could do doing other things so like it's still (laughs) very much a passion project but um you know we cared just cared deeply about the craft and wanted to meet other people and, and saw a lot of value for us in learning how to do this better and wanted to share that with everyone else and then it became very you know community driven so mark abraham joined us early on again as a volunteer to kind of help other product teams get up and running uh the conferences you know one of the things we've always done with our conferences is we hire up um event managers and things like that and producers and stuff to actually run the thing because again. That's not our our core skill set, nor how we are best utilized. So, we were able to do it fairly light touch, but you know there were definitely moments of asking ourselves what the hell we're doing as we're sitting there at one a.m. kind of putting together. You know, I think we were printing and hand sticking badges, and you know, I I had basically still to date done most of the design work for our conferences, but then like going to the printer, getting it from the printer, hanging it up in the venue, like all that stuff that we did in the early days. So. <laughs> uh, I think there was a point where we we're like, why are we doing this? But ultimately, it was just a great way to learn and, and meet other product people. So we just okay. love doing it. Yeah.
0: And for you personally, right? Because in 2015, like that's when uh, I think that's when you decided to sort of, you know, do take mind the product full time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how hard was it to to, to make that decision and why Why you and not, you know, not the other two co-founders to, to you know, sort of take it forward?
1: Yeah, I think it was definitely a, a moment where we had just done our first conference in San Francisco. So, you know, the second conference outside of London and realized that this wasn't just a London thing. I think that was the big wake up moment. And, you know, going to San Francisco, you feel like, well, it's the Valley, right? Like, why do they need a, a product? Like, they should, don't they have a product conference? They, they should be able to sort this out themselves. Um, and then getting the success that we did in that first year, I think we had. 700 people in San Francisco, the first year, the tickets sold out in like a week or two, which is insane. And we mm. actually had nearly 600 people on the waiting list after that. And we're like, but we can't actually physically fit you in the venue kind of thing. <laughs> so that was definitely the wake up call of like, okay, there's, there is something big here, there's something useful on an international level here. And I had just finished, uh, another startup job in Boston, uh, for Covester wanted to come back to London. And was kind of in the you know, quandary of like, what do I want to do with my life? And what do I want to do next? And like, should I take another startup job? Or is this a thing that we can build up to something and just decided to take the plunge? It wasn't an easy decision at the time. It was definitely like, you know, it was risky. And I took a massive pay cut to do it like classic startup founder thing. Mm. Um, but we just believed that we could build a, a good little business. Like we've never been in it to get rich or anything like that. There's, there's never going to be a, a massive, like financial outcome for this but it's more about building up a team and building up a a company that can like i said sustainably support the community right so it was a it was a big bet um it's worked out well and i think it's also you know in parallel been very good for me in terms of like my career and my visibility and personal brand and things like that that has allowed me to do the other things that i'm now doing um so i think that's been the, the the major kind of career benefit as opposed to you know, building a highly profitable company or anything like that because mm. that was never kind of really the goal.
0: Okay so would, would it be fair to say that you know doing this as a something that started off as a passion project which is now kind of I would say it's your job is would it be more fulfilling than you know having worked in your other roles?
1: I think so. I think for me personally, it's, it's definitely been part of a, a career progression from, you know, we were talking earlier about moving from IC to a, a product leader. I realized early on that I really enjoyed that part of like helping other product managers be great at what they do, you know, building up their success. Mm-hmm. Obviously that's very much what we try to do with Mind the product as well. But as my career has progressed, I've actually feel like my passion now is actually helping other teams, right? So I've done it as a consultant and now for um a vc firm like that is my job is actually helping other teams and kind of coaching them to be uh, the best possible product teams that they can be right mm-hmm. and so it's almost a natural part of that progression of doing that through mon- uh, my the product as well of helping other teams and helping other product managers around the world kind of realize what they can do with this craft
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, we will go into to, to the VC part of your role because that's actually something that I find very interesting. So we'll definitely go into that. But um, I wanted to ask you this curious question, and this is more from me than anything else, right? What is it like to do product for a product community platform, <laughs> right? It's,
1: yeah, it's... <laughs> it has its challenges. For, for one thing, we're a tiny team we literally have one developer so like very much you know in many ways we're not doing product the right way because we just don't have the resources um and in many ways we're doing so much product because you know there's so many product managers in the company that like (laughs) we all have opinions we're all talking to customers and we're all trying to figure out like what we should do um it's also hilarious sometimes because our customers are product managers right and so the feedback that we get is very different to any other company that i've ever worked for because <laughs> you kind of get either super detailed like oh what about this and i understand the constraints but this use case for this use, and you're like oh yeah okay that's great like you, the, the, these are customers that we can actually just be like yeah that's a great feature let's go let's go do that thing um so it's, it's very different in many ways but it's it's also kind of very edifying to to see that response and um, yeah to to get great feedback like that just means that people care right so
0: mm-hmm. uh, a... yeah were there any like did you think that you know sorry no let me let me let me phrase this properly because this question came in my head now to <laughs> think about it properly um, what product did, did you follow like any product templates or you know product um, um, journeys you know or did, did you take take stock from any of the other companies or, or things like that to sort of help maneuver your way to building um, Mind the Product?
1: I think in, in many ways, it's not, you know, until recently, uh, we haven't really been building a lot of product. It's, it's really been building a service and an experience and things like that. Mm, so mm. a lot of our focus has been on experience design and, and kind of figuring out, like, what is it that makes a great conference or a great event and, and a great meetup? Um, and then thinking a lot about content and so I think I think we've probably been more inspired from those kind of design disciplines of you know user journeys and and user experience journeys things like that we do a lot of we've done a lot of journey mapping and things and uh, I think the biggest product thing that we do is obviously just try to be as attuned to uh, what the community and and what our craft needs so talking to, to talking to our customers right which are our conference attendees and our our readers and our audience and our community as much as we can to get a sense of you know what do they need help with what are, what are the challenges like what's the kind of content they're interested in what's what's gonna um, attract them get them engaged but fundamentally you know we've we've articulated our mission as making product people more successful. So like that's the kind of question that we want to answer all the time. It's like what's what's going to help make you more successful? Like is it content, is it training? Is it a certain speaker on stage? You know, things like that. So it's a very different kind of product in that way, because we're not really building a lot of, you know, code or software. Mm -hmm. It's really building an experience and a and a service over time. So it has similar similar skills needed, I think, but it's a very different way of working, I think. Yeah, yeah.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So let us let's, let's move on from, from mind the product uh into you know the thing that you do on the side, or I don't know which one is the side and which one is the main, but
1: yeah. <laughs> About 50 50 at the moment.
0: So. Okay, all right. So you're actually in a VC company, equity ventures, I believe it's called. Um, and you are the well, you started off as a CPO in residence, right? So the interesting question is, what is a CPO in residence? Because I've heard of entrepreneur in residence, I've never seen CPO in residence. So yeah, what what is that?
1: I think officially the title was EIR, but we realized so most VC firms when you have an EIR, the idea is that you know it's a founder or CEO that's just exited a company, they don't quite know what they want to do next, but the VC firm knows that they trust this person, and they're like they come hang out with us for, you know, a year or so, and maybe help some of our teams, but also while you're figuring out what you'll build next, and we'll write the first check for you as you go build that thing. So that was kind of the title that that we had for it, but just kind of missold it and people didn't really understand because I wasn't there to build a startup, right? I was kind of there to help our portfolio companies. So Mm -hmm. made up the title of CPO in residence. And really, because that's kind of what I've been doing for the last couple of years of really helping all of our portfolio companies with those challenges. And often we go in at the A round uh, and invest uh, in businesses and that's naturally an inflection point where they need a first product person, right? Until that point, generally the founder has been the product person or one of the founders has been the product person. And this is the point where they're scaling and they're you know growing past 20, 30 people. They need to start splitting into multiple dev teams. They need to start building a product process and a product function. And so it's been a very natural fit for me to kind of come in and help and sometimes kind of be an interim CPO of like actually helping them do stuff, but most of the time helping them just build up that team and, and find the right fit for them, um, find and then coach through that inevitable kind of transition from the founder letting go of their baby a little bit and, and trusting the product person that's coming in and, and managing that relationship. Mm. So that's really why we ended up calling it kind of CPO in residence because um, just trying to show that like you basically get access to the cpo to to help you build up that team um, to our portfolios. okay, okay. Uh, I wanted to to sort
0: of discuss a little bit more about something that you said just now, right? because you were saying that part of your role is to help the founder transition to that first yeah. product person. And that is something a common thread that I hear a lot, um, especially in this part of the world, right? where mm. you know product people join companies and realize quite quickly that the center of influence for all things product does not lie with the product lead, or even if if they were the product lead that was hired, but that center of influence still resides within the the CEO or the founder, right? Either one. So in your experience, having helped people to do that, what do you think is the most important thing for a product leader who's who's joined such an organization and trying to move that center of, of influence for things around product uh, to, to become that expert? And at the same time, not make it seem like you've taken away, you know, like you're not baby snatching or, you know, cradle snatching or something, <laughs> anything of that sort. Yeah,
1: yeah I think it's, um, there's, also, so I'll start at one end, I think there's a real big misconception among founders, especially that, you know, when they get to that stage, they need to go hire, a you know, someone who's already a VP product or a CPO and often here in Europe. And I'm, I'm sure it's the same as as Asia, stage, you hear Like, Oh, we need someone from like Google or Facebook, like, you know, one of those big Valley names. Right. And actually a lot of what I do is to kind of walk founders back from that. Cause I think that's where you get massive conflict, right? Cause if you hire someone who is, um, Actually, if you hire someone from that size of a company, they're not going to know what to do with themselves in a 20-person startup anyway. It's a very <laughs> different kind of product craft. Yeah. Um, but also, I think you need to get a, a, the right match between kind of product vision and product execution. Hmm. And I think in a bigger company, you want the product leader to like be very product visionary and be the person who's thinking about where is this going in five, ten years you know, setting out that vision and and being very much responsible for it in a startup, you still want the founder to do that because they got to wherever they are today, because the founder had some insight or had some experience or had a vision for how this could be done better. And you don't want to take that away too early. So for me at that stage, when it is the first proper product person coming into a startup, it's much more about finding someone who loves the execution piece. Right. Again, being hands-on maybe it's an IC who has some people leader experience or a senior product manager, that kind of thing that can actually just come in and help execute and you know stabilize and clarify kind of what the process is, how do we make prioritization decisions, all that kind of day-to-day stuff, as opposed to, I'm gonna come in and be the Steve Jobs of this startup and like come up with the amazing vision because like that's what the founders are doing. And that's where you inevitably see conflict as well when they kind of mm. hire someone who, where that is a mismatch of vision versus execution. And then as the company scales, I think over time that product leader can grow into the role or you, you hire someone more senior later on that can kind of take on a bit more of that visionary role and, and like take it to the next 10 years kind of thing. But in the early days, I think it's incredibly important to actually respect the fact that the founders had some kind of unique insight or some unique vision of the world that got the company to where it is today. And that got that round of funding. And, you know, we, you shouldn't take that away too early, basically
0: very very interesting thank you thank you for sharing that 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 is a very different answer to be honest from from you know how how i've heard you know many people talk about their experience yeah
1: Yeah. thank you so much for that um all right so i think sorry to interrupt but i think it's you know it's because i've been in that role a couple times right i've been Mm. the first vp product coming into a company and taking over from founders and and having that struggle of like understanding how I best fit in and, and how I can be most impactful as a company. It doesn't mean that I don't want anyone, you know, it, you still want people who have vision and things like that. It's just being very clear that in the early days, your vision is going to be subsumed by the founder vision. Like it just, it's just mm. the nature of the thing and that, you know, they, own a big chunk of the company, but also they have had some unique insight that got them to where they are today. Mm. So, in the early days, you need to respect that and trust that and, and work with that and then help them figure out how do we communicate that? How do we articulate that? How do we clarify it so everyone understands and do all the other things that we talk about around team alignment and the process and prioritization? But fundamentally, you're not necessarily coming in to reinvent the wheel, right? You're just helping them execute it better.
0: Hmm. So, sorry. Actually, now now that you mentioned it, now 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 another question came up. So, would it be fair to say that you know, if you were going into such an arrangement where it's an early stage startup, maybe just did it, did a Series A, or maybe it's a you know pre-Series A, and you're going in at that stage, that you should understand that your role is going to be very different, and if you wanted to really sort of do the whole visionary thing and and go into this full strategy mode. You probably have to go through, you know, go through the fire, so to speak, of doing the execution and then biding your time building the company and then get to a stage where now the 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 CEO or the founder is, is you know, a lot more consumed by other things and has to sort of hand it over in that
1: sense. I think to some extent, I think it's also, you know. As, as with everything in, in product it depends uh, there's no, there's no <laughs> black and white right it it so depends on the the founders and and how they think about things and and where they want mm. to add value right mm. i think mm. often successful startups that we see often have a very product minded founder even if they don't have product management experience like it is someone who has that you know sense and has that understanding of like how to make something customer focused they really understand the problem they're trying to solve or the opportunity in the market so you don't want to necessarily replace that uh i think you know I, I want to be clear like the person that we tend to bring in at that stage is definitely intended to be involved in those conversations and like be part of the strategy conversations and, and again articulating that vision and that idea is incredibly important and something not all founders are great at so yeah. helping them with that it's just that you're not replacing them right it's not and i think that's what sets up that tension often in startups of like we bring in a super senior product leader and they think that they have to set up the strategy and set up division and everything else. And the founder might have a slightly different view on it. And that's just going to set up tension pension and, and not mm. set you up for success,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those are really, really nice words of wisdom. Yeah, so I think for, for listeners and viewers, you know, I think take into that into account when you're looking for that role. I think in my point of view, I think these kinds of roles are great because you really get to learn. Like you're going to be hands-on with a lot of things. Um, but I think as Martin said, one of the very interesting things is that you're not going in to straight away be this you know, product superstar and do everything. But a lot of the times you have to understand what the company needs and be what the company needs at that point yeah. in time. Yeah.
1: Okay. okay. And I think it's having that conversation, right, as part of the hiring process on both sides, right? Whether you're the, the founder trying to hire a product person or you're the product person trying to, considering a startup, it's like, have the conversation of. Where does the CEO or founder want to spend their time? Like maybe they are a super business driven strategist and they should be in charge of the strategy, but focused on building the rest of the organization, or maybe they are actually, you know, a a designer or something as a background. So they should be super involved in the the product vision and the UX and, and what you're working on. And it's just understanding like, the best trade-off that you can find on that and and having that conversation up front because you don't want to start in the company and then discover later that there's a mismatch, right? Because that just sets mm. everyone up for failure.
0: Yeah, it's very true. It's very true. I, I definitely agree on that, you know, having that very frank and blunt conversation of what the company needs. Um, yeah. I think that's where, you know, a lot of our Asianness comes out where we like to sort of tippy-toe around these conversations. And, you know, once we hear what we like to hear, say, like, oh, I think this is right and then you go in and like, oh so yeah I definitely agree yeah Yeah. (laughs) okay okay um so your role in in equity has changed a little bit you're now the sort of operating partner and so again I'm just very curious to know what does an operating partner do and how has that differed in terms of you know being a CPO in residence
1: yeah So for me, it's definitely been just a a deeper involvement with the firm. And I think it's moved from being very focused on portfolio companies and and kind of helping them. And, you know, we we believe in the value of that value add to also, so I'm, I'm still doing that, but also kind of doing deal work, really. So I'm now much more involved in eventually trying to help find deals. But right now, a lot of like having those, you know, due diligence type conversations when we're looking at deals, trying to understand like, Does this make sense? Do we agree with the vision? Do we agree with the strategy? Do we agree with where they're going? Mm -hmm. Assessing the teams to understand, like, do they think about product the way we want them to think about product? Do they understand their their gaps, what, what they need to hire for all those kind of things? So just being much more involved on the deal side and, and therefore having an impact on who we choose to work with and who we choose to invest in. Okay okay
0: i've got one more question about your your work with with a vc and i promise i w- i will move on if let's say there is <laughs> there is a company or you know a product that you know equity really looks like they really like it but this is a this is some uh, a product that has grown and managed to succeed without having a product team and you want to invest and if let's say you say hey i think it's time for you to you know start building a product team and the founder says, well, how about no? Um, because so the, let, me, let me give you a little bit of context as to where I'm coming from. So there's a story where I've heard about this um, startup that did very well. And they, they became successful and they were looking for funding. And one of the conditions that the VC firm put on them was that you need to build up your product practice or your product team as well. And what happened was, you know, they they went around trying to hire, but they were quite half-hearted about it, right? So in those cases, doesn't it feel like that works to the detriment of the company as opposed to helping them grow?
1: No, absolutely. And I think I I I don't think we've ever been faced with that kind of black again black and white decision of like, oh, we're not going to invest because they refuse to hire a product team. But I think it would be uh, it's definitely a conversation to have and understand why they don't think it's important. Uh, and fundamentally recognizing as well that if they don't have a product team someone's still doing the product job right whether it's yeah. the founder or it's the engineers somebody's doing that job of mm. making prioritization decisions trying to figure out what are we building next what is the opportunity like all the stuff that a product manager does so it's understanding like how those questions are being answered today and and whether there's an improvement to be had by by hiring a product manager which of course i would believe that there is mm. uh, and just having a conversation with the founders about about that right mm. and i think I mean, there there are several startups that have grown super successfully without that. I think Stripe is one of the most famous examples where in the early days they didn't have product managers. They, you know, they believed as a developer focused product that their developers should be the product managers. Again, they didn't have the titles, but they were doing that job Mm. so that they could best respond to their developer customers and users over time they have added a product function but you know i think that it it, again just shows that there is no black and white yes or no answer i think fundamentally when i go in to make those assessments it's much more about understanding whether the founders realize who's making those decisions how do you you know is that a clear process does everyone understand why we're making those decisions you know that it's the clarity of it i think that's the most important thing for me and um in many ways i don't You know, I I probably care less of whether they hire a product manager or not, than they have a clear process for how those decisions are being made. And inevitably that just means somebody has to come in and and make those decisions. So, um, I don't think I'd ever be that black and white about it, but I do fundamentally believe that the best teams, cross-functional teams work together and, and need that, you know, product part to, uh, be a counterpart to the designer and engineering on the team. So, Hmm. um, yeah, I've never been faced with that. So. Who knows how i might respond but um i don't think i would be you know a flat out no but at the same time if a founder was you know that adamant about it i'd want to understand why and fundamentally one of the things we do look for in in our companies that we invest in is kind of coachability right because the whole point is we want to help them on that journey but if they're so set in their ways then we can't Mm. really add value to that and and we might Mm. you know not meet uh eyes on something else later down the road as well so that would probably be the red flag as opposed to whether or not they're specifically refusing to hire a product or anything like that
0: good points good points all right okay i promised i'll move on so we shall move on right okay let's let's talk about something more recent um and that is COVID. right so first of all um one of the things that you know um i definitely want to know more about is how you know, mind the product was impacted by, you know, the whole COVID situation because mind the product has, I mean, aside from product tank, you know, which, which are basically very organic and, you know, cities running their own meetups, but mind the product has built such a strong brand, especially in, in the conference. And I can, I can imagine that that would have really hit, you know, the, the, the company hard. So, Absolutely. yeah, what, what, what happened and, and, and how did you guys deal with it?
1: Yeah. I think, you know, we were, um, We started last year with with big plans. It was our 10th anniversary year. Uh, We had, you know, four conferences on sale uh, and we would, you know, a fifth one planned. And I think it was in February, we were in Manchester kind of running that conference when the the first kind of signals started coming that, you know, this was more than just uh, in China, that, you know, the first couple of cases had been uh, reported in Singapore and other places. Uh, even at that conference in Manchester in February, there were a couple of people who were flying in from somewhere else in Europe and couldn't or decided not to because their their company wouldn't let them travel because this was going on. And I think that's the that was the wake-up call that something was happening, right? And the, mm-hmm. only a, kind of a week after that, we ended up having to cancel our March conference in Singapore. Um, you know, offered everyone refunds and things like that, but kind of had to cancel the conference because we realized that travel was just going to be too difficult. Uh, and again, at this, at this point, it was still kind of confined to Southeast Asia and Asia. So we thought maybe that's, that's all we will have to do, but we were monitoring it, obviously. And then, it, you know, it, as we all oh, forget at this point, I think it, how quickly this moved, right? It was only like a couple of weeks later that there, we went from, oh, there's two cases in Singapore to like all of Southeast Asia's lockdown. And now there's cases in the US and Europe and, you know, everywhere else in the world. And that's when uh, we started figuring, you know, we were already talking about, okay, what are, what are our contingency plans? How do we like shut down our San Francisco conference, which is normally in July and our London conference, which is normally in, in September, October, we thought would still be fine at that point. we're like, oh, that's so far away. It'll, it'll be fine. But the big kind of alarm for us was, um, there was at one point, so we sell all our tickets through Eventbrite. And actually until that point, 90% of our revenue was from conference ticket sales. Um, and we sell all our tickets through Eventbrite and they made a decision overnight to stop what they call advanced payouts. So when you're a decent customer of Eventbrite, they will actually give you 90% of the revenue as cash flow. So you get a uh, payout every week or two um, and they'll hold back 10% in case of cancellations and stuff. For most customers, it's the other way around. They might give you 10% of the cash and hold 90% in case you end up canceling. So they ended up halting that overnight. And basically killing our cash flow overnight. Right. So suddenly Mm -hmm. we went from, Oh, we have decent cash coming in the door. We can do these plans. Right. And, um, to having no cash coming in the door, looking at our bank balance and being basically realizing that we were four weeks away, uh, from probably having to shut down the whole company because we had enough cash in the bank to, you know, we, we always want to do things properly. So like we had Mm -hmm. enough cash in the bank to like, refund all those tickets do it properly like um but um you know redundancy in the uk would you know you'd have to pay two three months salary all that kind of stuff so like we had enough cash in the bank to run for a while but at the same time if there was no cash coming in the door then it's like okay well the point at which we have to make that decision is is four weeks out so that was wow. terrifying in many ways not you know I think our priority order in that point was like okay how do we save this team because they are 15 people who full-time you know work for Mm. us and and rely on us and have mortgages and families and all that kind of stuff and then the second point was how do we save the community because like if this thing does go out like how do we keep this alive in some way so that you know it can continue to exist and at least protect product tank and stuff like that and then probably somewhere farther down the priority list was like what does that mean for us personally as Mm. the founders and so that's when we, um, you know, we were already talking about it, but we really had to accelerate kind of planning, uh, a pivot, basically, like we had to find other revenue streams. We couldn't rely on the conference and event stuff anymore. Luckily we'd been experimenting with our online training or our training moving can kind of to a virtual or online format. So we started doing that. Um, and then the big one for us was really trying to pivot to a membership model where it's a premium subscription service. And the way we think about it is basically that it's a conference, but it lasts all year, right? So you get a ton of amazing content, community, all that kind of stuff But you pay a subscription service for it, and it's all delivered online. And we actually managed to get that out. I think it took us six weeks to build it. The first MVP It took us about nine months to clean up all the tech debt after that. But that's (laughs) another conversation. Um, and in the meantime, also the UK government came out with, uh, what they called the furlough program, which is kind of supporting businesses like ours in mm. being able to, um, support our staff. So we basically had to send home, I think half the team, but they were, their salary was 80% covered by the government while that was happening so that we didn't have to lay anyone off mm. and we could rebuild basically. And, and so we managed to do that through the online training, um, we ran a, a digital conference or two actually last year uh, to replace San Francisco and London and then this membership program, which we've been building up and, and now has thousands of members to kind of replace some of that revenue stream. And luckily now we've been able to bring everyone back from furlough um, and you know the, the company stabilized, but it was definitely a, a terrifying and highly stressful couple of months over the summer last year.
0: Yeah, I, I can imagine, and and thank you for being so so honest and and open about it. You know, I was, I was a little bit hesitant to to ask the question, but yeah, this is the product and show, and I think the how how the team has managed to really move and and still be healthy, I think is really a a, a success story in terms of you know really understanding the mood. And, and then trying to you know, do whatever it takes to, to really survive this. So yeah, that's, that's really incredible. That's really incredible. So I suppose then the, my next question would be, what do you think product looks like post COVID, right? Because in, in, in this last you know, 13, 14 months or whatever, a lot of things have changed a lot of assumptions that we've made about even our craft has has changed. Like for one easy one that I I, I, I actually said it in, in the time I was giving a talk in MTP as well, was, you know, for so long, many product leaders were very not keen on remote work. And suddenly, mm-hmm. you know, in a blink of an eye, we've been doing it for 14 months and it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. In fact, you know, uh, um, surveys and polls seem to indicate that, a lot more people have realized that it's doable and this mm. is the kind of work arrangement that they want where they don't have to go in every time and of course most of them said they wanted that sort of either or rather than yeah then you know just make you choose one or the other and so yeah what do you think product is going to look like post-covid what has changed what's going to continue changing what's going to stay the same
1: yeah, I think I mean the remote thing I was for a very long time uh until actually probably we you know started building up the team for minor product I was I was a big believer in the importance of co-located right I, I always made it a part of the point of like and I think in a, in reaction to what remote used to look like was oh well we have a dev team you know when I worked at Monster our dev team was originally in Boston and then we built a European center in Prague and so the dev teams in Prague and the product managers in London and it's like that was what remote used to look like hmm. and that doesn't work well right i think um that's why i was always a huge believer in being co- co-located so that you're sitting next to your team and, and you're working together on the problem and as a as mind the product you know we've been remote uh from day one because we live all over southeast england and long ass commutes are not something we <laughs> want to enforce on anybody so and we also just didn't need the expense of an office so we would get together once a week basically and we had you know team day we'd just rent a meeting room somewhere and everyone got together and you basically had all your team meetings but also like your all hands and updates and that kind of stuff and then everyone goes back and works from home so that was kind of our our normal operating procedure anyway Mm. and through that kind of realizing that the remote thing does work very well if you're intentional about it right Mm. and i think that's what we've seen over the last year where it's been enforced right i think it's just accelerated that trend of seeing that remote works uh, as long as a couple of things are true one everyone's remote right so everyone's at the same you know everyone's on a zoom call not five people in one room and two people somewhere else like that that doesn't work (laughs) Yeah, yeah um and i think it works and it's worked for us because we already had a, amazing relationships and stuff like that like i'm in awe of the people who have started new jobs over the past year or you know started and scaled companies over the last year where you're bringing you know brand new people into a fully remote environment um and being able to make that successful it's like amazing to me because i think going forward to your point i think remote is going to be more or less the new normal i think mm. We're going to spend most of our time remote. I think, you know, companies will still have offices. We'll go in two or three days a week kind of thing, uh, but have the option. Uh, But I think we're also just, everyone's going to have that much more understanding for what it means to be remote and how to engage with each other over a Zoom call, how to be respectful of that, um, things like that. But also realize that I think the most successful remote companies, you know, who have been early advocates for it, they invest in it right it's not a way to make it cheap of like oh well we can yeah. hire cheap teams abroad or whatever it's actually you probably spend as much as you would on the office in quarterly catch-ups and everyone comes together and, and sits together in a room and, and has an off-site and all that kind of stuff because there are some things that I, you know, I've definitely struggled with over the last year, like those whiteboard moments where you just want to get together with a team and like think about what's coming next and what's the oh, five, 10-year yeah. thing look like and how do we think about the strategy and rethink stuff. Um, the day-to-day execution where you actually need your head down, you need that focus time, it's super easy to do at home and do remote, but you need that face time uh, in order to really gel a team as well, I think. So yeah. I do think we'll see remote being more or less than you normal. I think that'll be different for different companies. Like... Where they already have a geographic nexus, people might come into the office two or three days a week. I know you're in a fully remote company now, right? So yep. I'm hoping like you guys will be investing in that and meeting each other and that once once we can travel again and stuff like that to to get yes. that FaceTime and get that strategy time and, and stuff like that, and then go back home and be remote. Like I think I think that's a very natural thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And what about what about um, product management? in Asia, right? Because one of the things that was interesting was, you know, uh, Mind the Product decided to to start a APEC conference yeah. um, that was in Singapore in 2019. Unfortunately, 2020 got sort of moved to digital because of COVID. Yeah. What, but what, what are your thoughts in terms of product management in Asia moving forward?
1: Like what well, does the I mean, future hold? Yeah, I mean, I'm super excited about it. And I think one of our big missions at Mind the Product is to say that, you know, not all the goods stuff and product comes out of the valley right mm. yes there's a ton of stuff we can learn from them they they have you know been trailblazers in many ways and there's obviously super successful companies there that we can take for inspiration but there's also amazing stuff happening all over the world right here in london there's amazing startups in berlin There are amazing startups in singapore ko you know, jakarta um you know australia there's amazing startups all over the world that are trying different things right we were talking about sharif earlier in atlassian right out of sydney like there's stuff that we can learn from them and you know we put him on that stage in singapore because we wanted to share those lessons and share that story uh and the same i think you know we had we just had mtpcom digital for apac again sadly couldn't do it in person in singapore and we really tried to you know we had a couple of uh, speakers from from the us um but most of everyone else from was from across asia pack and really just sharing those stories and like this is how we tackle that problem here's how we're trying to move this thing forward and here's how we're trying to change that culture but also celebrating those successes right like gojek and grab who have shown that you can build multi-billion mm. dollar businesses out of southeast asia like that's amazing mm-hmm. why aren't we talking more about those stories right like we can be just as inspired and, and learn stuff from them as we can from from the big American names. And so that's really why we started the conference was to um, help that happen basically. And again, not to you know, not to put us on the stage. And it's not we're not there to kind of tell Asia what to do, we're there to elevate the, the voices from Asia and share what you guys are doing, because we think there are incredible stories there. Um, and I actually think there's there's things that are happening in uh, Southeast Asia, especially that are even more interesting to look at than what happens in other places, right? You look at Grab and Gojek and their kind of user research. Talk about remote, right? Like they have countries and markets all over Southeast Asia that they can't do the face to face as well. So they've been figuring out how to do that. We can learn a ton from that. I think there's Mm. also fascinating stuff around the intersection of kind of the Chinese, you know, super app where a million services in, in one product. And then there's the Western, you know, one thing, one product, one app. And Southeast Asia seems to be experimenting with something in in the middle, right? Which works Mm. for that culture and that market. And again, there's there's fascinating things that we can learn from that. And now you're seeing uh, Western apps kind of copy some of that, right? With Uber and Uber Eats kind of being more integrated and things like that. And that's purely influenced by what's been happening with Grab and Gojek. So that's fundamentally why we want to support that community and, and do something as a conference in Southeast Asia is to elevate those stories and show that, hey, there's awesome stuff happening here. You guys should be proud of that and also learn from each other and and then teach the rest of us because we can all learn from you as well.
0: Nice. Very nice. Yeah. So with that, I think we're going to go to the last segment of the show, um and this is uh, i always tell people this is my favorite part which is you know we talk about a a song that you chose um you chose a song well actually i'm not gonna say it i'll let you introduce it so why don't you tell us the artist and the song and why why you chose that song
1: so i actually gave you two choices because i have pretty eclectic uh music taste and i listen to a lot of stuff and i think especially over this last year like i i've had my stereo going the whole time here in the office and it's just been a you know, music to me is a is a great escape, but also kind of either focusing the mind or clearing the mind, like depending on, on mood and, and things that we need. So I ended up choosing um, Michael Kiwanuko who's one of my favorite artists. I discovered him a couple of years ago. He's now obviously blown up recently. Um, and I picked a song called You Ain't the Problem, uh, which I love uh, and has, again, just been on repeat, I think, over this last year because um, the album came out the tail end of 2019 I believe or the beginning of 2020 but yeah okay and what was it that you liked about that particular song I think there's a there's a couple of things so it's just a happy song somehow it's just like it's got a good beat to it it's just you know there's even like in the beginning there's some like party sound in the background so you hear like happy people it's just a happy song right I actually had to the point where it's now my alarm clock song right so <laughs> oh wow okay and every morning like starts with this track um, and it's just like it's it's a happy beat, it's a happy song, and then the lyrics like he's a he's a awesome lyricist, I think. And like he's the when I first heard it, I took away that you know he's he's singing about love and like it's not you know you ain't the problem and like there's pain in the world, but like it's not your fault kind of thing. And and very much you know I'm a hopeless romantic at root, so that's kind of what I took away from it. And then as we were talking about this track and in, uh, in preparation for the show, I actually did a bit more research uh and it turns out what what he's actually singing about and the, what inspired him to write it uh was his imposter syndrome uh in the music industry and he was thinking like he doesn't know what it takes to succeed and like it but it's not it's not him you ain't the problem uh and obviously like I'm very open about me having a ton of imposter syndrome for the craft that I do and so it turns out it has an even deeper connection for me
0: wow oh, i didn't even know that so yeah that was super cool and yeah I, I i took a listen i really liked the vibe it was like you said right yeah. very upbeat it's got it's got this little almost like this um rock and roll feel to it this is like this yeah and a
1: bit of like 60s yeah, it's the 60s right soul in there somewhere as well like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's 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 my very eclectic music taste i think again like i just like that kind of combination
0: yeah it's, it was very nice because at first i was like when i was listening to it, it's like oh is this is this something from back in the day and then no yeah. it's not it, and, and and to be fair i don't listen to to michael Kiwan, kiwanuka at all so yeah this was this was really great and this is one of the things why i enjoyed this part of the show mm-hmm. because then i get to get introduced to all kinds of music in fact um yeah. I got introduced to well, one artist. I can't remember his name now. Um, was a, was a lo-fi artist, and I'm like, oh, I loved it. And then now I'm getting my Kinawuka and uh, Kiwa Nuka And before that was like yeah, so so many options, and it's it's amazing. So this this yeah. is why I love it. So yeah, thank you so much, um, Martin, for being on this episode of the Product Uncensored show. Um again, thank you for being super honest, super open, super transparent. I think. I don't know about our listeners and our views. I'm sure they have, but I have definitely learned a lot. And I I think I know, I feel like I know you so much better because of the experiences and and all of that. So thank you so much. And just before we go, um, standard closing would be, do you have anything that you want to leave with our listeners or viewers? Or yeah, any any famous, you know, words or, or words of wisdom?
1: I think I just want to end with a with a thank you. I think thank you to you for having me, and and thank you for everything that you do for the community as well. I think, you know, we've we've always seen the the amazing work that you do in KL, and and always felt like you're part of the the big you know family, even though you might not be officially. And we kind of don't care about that, right? It's it's all one product community, and we're all trying to help out. So thank you for doing that. And. Thank you for letting me be on the show even though I'm not in Southeast Asia and, and share some of my insights and and I look forward to hearing the rest of your guests as we go forward uh, and really, you know, just just let us know how we can support the product community across Southeast Asia even more because we we would love to learn more from you guys as well.
0: Wow, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that was Martin Erickson, who is the chairman of Mind the Product, who's also the operating partner at Equity Ventures. Um, it's been a really, really great episode. And again, you know, I think more than anything, what drives me to continue to run this is because of the great conversations and the great people that I get to interact with, you know, and I get to do it all in the guise of, hey, I want to talk to you, but I get to learn so much more. Um, So thank you all for listening and watching. And yeah, if if you've enjoyed it, you know, give it a like, put a comment, I don't know, do whatever you do. And Keep being awesome and I'll see you guys at the next episode. Thank you so much and bye-bye.